0: Hello there, fair listener, and welcome to the Emotion at Work Podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. Um Before we get into the podcast proper, I wanted to set a bit of context. So this is the second podcast of 2018, and its theme is emotion at work in memory and learning. Now I mentioned in the first podcast of 2018 that I was going to be running some experiments with the podcast this year. So this one is an opportunity for you to be a fly on the wall to a discussion. So sometimes on the podcast I get researchers or practitioners or business leaders who are talking about the experiences that they've had. And, and you know we're talking about concepts or theories or practice or that sort of stuff. Whereas this week it's very much an embryonic type discussion really. So all three of us have slightly different perspectives on the role of emotion in, in learning, in how it interacts with memory and how it interacts with cognition. So... What you get to hear this time is an opportunity for you to listen to uh, that kind of embryonic discussion as it, as it happens, really. So i would be great if you could let me know what you think. Uh, let me know how it comes across in your ears, um, because uh, our first experiment of 2018 um, is this podcast, really. So I uh, hope you enjoy and let's get back to the podcast proper and cue the titles. Hello and welcome to the Emotion Work podcast where we have two guests this week, um, which is quite rare to have three voices. So I'm excited about that because I think the only time I've done it before was with Joe Cook and um, Barbara Thompson when I was with them at the uh, at the d show. So before I kind of set the context and w- what we're about today, let's get their voices on the air. So my two guests this week, are first up we have Nick Shackleton-Jones. Hello, Nick. Hi. Hi. And we have Suk Pabiel. Hello, Suk. Hi, Phil. Now, as regular listeners to the show will know, um, I start with a question that's generally unrelated to the topic at hand, but helps us get to know our guests on the podcast a little better. So, my question this week is, is there a magic way to loading the dishwasher? So, Suk, I'm going to come to you first. Is there a specific way or a magic way that the dishwasher must be loaded?
1: So, you're asking me a question about which I haven't used a dishwasher in about 7 years because uh, we, we just got rid of it at our home and um, from, what, from my time before I, I, I seem to remember there are certain things you should do, obviously it, they should be rinsed before you put them in and bowls and plates should be at the bottom and they should always be uh, facing, uh, the, the, the face of them should always be facing the jets Otherwise, you don't get to clean inside, obviously. But okay. that seems to escape quite a few people. Um, and glasses and cutlery, where possible, should be on top. Um, and I think that's the right way to load a dishwasher.
0: Okay, wonderful. Thank you, sir. Uh, and Nick, for you?
2: <laughs> Somewhat disappointingly, I um, also do not have a dishwasher. Why? Um, so um, I, I'm not an expert or an authority on loading dishwashers, but... What I do think is that I remember growing up that um, somebody would cook and then as a family we would get together to do the washing up. And I, I think it's sort of slightly, I said, perhaps it's sort of rationalisation, but I think it's a bit of a shame that that sort of ritual where you'd work together to prepare and then kind of clean up after a meal, and people would take different roles, uh, sort of vanished. Um, so um, I, I'm not a big fan of dishwashers.
0: Wow. I, 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 I'm trying to think if I ever met two people at the same time that don't have a dishwasher. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you to a certain degree, Nick, although I do have some some quite challenging memories of, because my, my dad was like, when we got, especially when I was 10, I think, from 10 onwards, my role within the, the kind of everybody getting together to clean up bit was the washer and my dad was the dryer slash inspector. Uh, and the amount of times I would get stuff rejected, you yeah, know, and he, he would unceremoniously, you know, deposit it back in the bowl. Um, and I was like, what, what, what's wrong with that one? And then he said, it wasn't clean. And then we'd have to, and then we'd have to go again. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I remember that. We don't get that. So we, we I, in our family, everybody has to take their their plates to the kitchen but then it gets um it gets kind of down to one person then to to load the dishwasher um but I, my again my my dad's quite um funny about like if i go and visit if i load the dishwasher while i'm there he will rearrange it according to to <laughs> according to how he would like it to be um
1: so so in answer to your question phil what is the right way to load a dishwasher
0: you let the person who owns the dishwasher load it <laughs> <laughs>
2: Is is your dad something of an introvert by any chance?
1: <laughs> I don't
0: know what you mean, Nick. I don't know what you mean? <laughs> okay. Um, so thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, and and part of that part of the reason I, I like to ask those questions at the start is because what it eludes, what kind of it, it it brings out, I guess, is stories. So either stories of. Um, you know people's experiences or not with whatever that is and and that links a lot I think into the content of what we're going to talk about today. So the the idea or the reason I guess for pulling together um, this particular uh, A-list uh, guest list for the podcast today um, was because it, it started as an online discussion. So Nick you you wrote a blog and, and posted it about the sort of the topic of how do how do our thoughts and emotions link together, or actually, do we even have thoughts? Actually, is it all just to do with emotion? Um, and also, then you, you mentioned about the kind of overlaps of memories and experiences and decisions. Um, and then Sook, you also um, kind of responded to that to say, well, actually, Nick, I'm not quite sure. I agree, or I might have a different perspective or a different view. And. I mentioned to Nick when we were off the air that one of the things that I particularly like is is the the longer form audio discussions as opposed to written, which is why I thought it'd be really nice to um, uh, to pull the podcast together today so we can get into it and explore it in more detail. And I'm sure my my short summaries there won't do any justice to to what it is that you guys were were um, what you wrote in your in your blog. So when I started to pull the podcast together, I got to think about well, how do I structure it, and, and how do I um kind of get your views out so i thought i'd keep it nice and simple with a with a big broad open question so what i thought we'd do is is suck will come to you first then Nick will come to you afterwards and then i'll kind of add my my views in as well at the end so we're talking about um emotion at work and thinking and feeling and how do kind of thoughts and emotions interact and and link together so uh, for you then first of all Suk, what are your thoughts or feelings or what do you want to say about this topic
1: Um, so, you're going to have to repeat the question for me, please.
0: What are you thinking, feeling, or want to say about um, the the topic of thoughts and feelings and how they kind of interact and go together, pulling from the blog you wrote in response to Nick's original post? Okay. Um, all
2: right.
1: I'm, 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 I'm just having to kind of think back also on what, on what I wrote. Um, and um, So... I, what do I think and feel about it? Um, so I think w- when I read Nick's piece, it, uh, it highlighted for me that there's a number of things that um, that I suppose are, are really helpful for us in this space, in, in this time and space that we're in now when it comes to understanding how do people think and how do people feel? Um, and what is our understanding of that? How can we articulate it in a way that helps people to know that Stuff better, and um, and from a kind of a simple perspective, I um, I read what Nick wrote. Um, I had a reaction to it. That reaction prompted me to want to um, um, articulate my response back, mm-hmm. and in doing so, helped me to articulate and express what I think about the topic as well. So. Um, and, and for me, there's um, there's also something here around, um, there's, there's something of a continued exploration that needs to happen here, which I, I guess is part of what this podcast is about, is um, you know, Nick wrote something, I've written something, we're now going to explore that further based on what we've written and where this discussion then takes us. And I think that's only a helpful thing to do mm-hmm. because it helps us to be able to further frame our thinking and our understanding of whatever it is that we have. Um, so I guess that's, that, that's certainly one place that I'm taken to. Um, and the other place I'm taken to as well is that, uh, I'm looking forward to this as a learning experience. Yeah. I, I have a certain perspective on, on how we think and how we feel. Um, Obviously, that's why I wrote what I did. Um, and it'll be really interesting to know how does my own thinking evolve through this process? You know, I'm, I'm, and I'm very open to hearing and talking to Nick about this and, and to you, Phil, um, and to be able to see where that takes me further as well. So I guess initially, without wanting to get into the depths of what do I think and feel about um, the, the topic at hand, um, in any further detail, I think that's probably a, 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 an initial place to start.
0: Okay, thank you, Suk. Um, um, and if it's all right, we'll come back to you in a bit. For I think the discussion will take us to that kind of more um, more specificity and, and, and more detail around it. Um, and then, yeah. so if I turn the question to you, then Nick, I'm happy for you to be as specific and detailed or um, or, or not as you like, really. So um, again, what are your kind of thoughts, feelings, or what do you want to say? <sighs>
2: Um, Maybe I need to tell a bit of an origin story. Um, So my first kind of job, I was a psychology lecturer. Um, Without going on, um, I was teaching a lot of learning theory to kids who were basically just sitting, writing it down, and then regurgitating it. And I think the curious thing is, in education, that never occurred to me that there's anything ironic or odd about teaching Piaget, who says all learning needs to be exploratory, and then just having people write that down and answer in an exam. Um, But then it did start to become a practical problem, because then when I moved into business and I try to apply that learning theory basically none of it makes any difference I, I'm just going to be as, as blunt as I can and I, this sort of dawning sense that it was all mumbo jumbo um, be, became a concern for me and I think it, it, by and large in the industry it never it never is concerned we carry on talking about things that are hypothetical like learning styles and you know there's loads of debunking of learning styles but we just like to have something you know some sort of framework but I, I became really deeply concerned partly because I think my background was you know philosophy and psychology about the truth and you know what what it was that was really going on and so we, we actually did a, a short experiment um, while I was working at Siemens Communications which more or less demonstrated at least my satisfaction that none of this learning theory made any difference and, and then so that acted as a springboard for me to think well how is it that people really do learn you know what is the process that is really going on and it took me about 10 years to begin to kind of understand the outlines I thought of what was really going on Um, and I started talking about it and I called it the effective context theory Uh, and it's quite a radical idea Um, the the thrust of it is that um, we don't remember anything Um, we don't actually remember anything Um, what we do is um, we recall or encode how things impact us effectively Um, so if things elicit a strong reaction in us we're much more likely to remember them if things are boring frankly they don't elicit any kind of effective or emotional kind of response then we're more likely to forget them it's a good theory in the sense that it's very predictive and it explains an awful lot of things that other learning theories don't what we remember what we don't Um, and so I began to apply this in the area of L&D coming up with sort of uh, some of the models kind of courses and resources and Um, experience design I think that just to sort of finish off the major challenge I've got now is not that uh, I'm trying to get people to agree with me but trying to get people to understand what I'm saying because emotion has become such a corrupted word and we have such a limited understanding of of how it plays in our lives if I can just end with one kind of metaphor I mean imagine that that you and I um or, or the three of us were were sitting watching um a computer game, somebody playing a computer game, let's say it's Call of Duty. So we're all standing around watching somebody play Call of Duty. And I say, isn't it amazing how all of this is, is based on the manipulation of ones and zeros and you turn around to me and you say, no, oh, silly Nick, you know, obviously some of it, you know, is ones and zeros, like the mathematics bit might be ones and zeros, but obviously lots of it isn't ones and zeros, you know, all the graphics, for example, um, that's where we are in the conversation. Um, I'm basically saying that effective processing is the operating system which underpins everything everything so by definition all thoughts and concepts are a a species if you like of effective processing Um, so that 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 i think is what i'm really kind of struggling to get across um when when we have these kinds of conversations i'm not talking about the kind of emotions that people refer to every day when they get angry you know on a train for example i'm talking about the basic way in which our brain processes um inbound stimulus and then operates and compares and recalls that that information
0: okay thank you nick um Sir, so, I'm conscious that um I said I'd come back to you for some of the um more detail and specifics. Would would you like me to do that now? Would it be okay if I did that now?
1: Yeah. Um, and also I have some, I have a couple of questions for Nick that I'd like to just check in about as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Nick, just to check, is the effective
1: context model a theory and model that you've developed? Just um. I guess that's something I, I've been unclear about and haven't been
2: able to ask you about previously. Yes, yeah, it is. And and that's drawn out
1: from your, um, yeah, or rather, where is that drawn out from, please?
2: Um, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm going to be a bit presumptuous um, um, and... So um, the, the presumption is that, you know, one of the things I studied was kind of philosophy of science. And what winds me up no end these days is that I think people have uh, science back to front. They think that the way that science works is you do a bunch of research and then you come up with a theory, whereas in fact it's the other way around. Um, you do a theory... And that then provides a basis for hypothesis generation, which you can then research. So where's it come from is is then a deeply philosophical question. I was talking to Phil kind of earlier. I think um, nobody really knows where their theories come from. That's always retrofitted. People join the dots, you know, going backwards. Um, You know, it's like, where did the theory of evolution come from? Well, you can tell a story about how, you know, Darwin was looking at all these birds and that led, but that's not really the truth. Um, And again, like everything emotional, it kind of bubbles up and you do it a disservice when you post-rationalize it, but I can point to a few people. I mean, as I said to Phil earlier, I was reading Heidegger and I was reading Nietzsche, um, and Nietzsche has this marvelous phrase which I often quote, which is: he says thoughts are the the shadows of our emotions. Um, they're always simpler, darker, emptier. And of course, the problem with reading Nietzsche is that nobody ever, everybody, nobody ever takes him literally. He, he wanted to be taken literally, but the things that he says are so strange and so alien to us that people take them as metaphors. Um, and so it's taken me a lifetime to to learn to read him literally. Um, and the other person I was reading was Heidegger as well. He was talking a lot about the essence of human beings being concerned. So they were ideas which kind of, as a student, kind of sat there and bubbled up and, and perhaps connected with other things that were bumping around in my head. Um, so that's, sorry, it's a bit of a long answer, but it's the best I can do.
1: Thanks. No, that, that's that's really helpful for me um, because I've, I've 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 seen your writings on the affective context model, and I can I I can understand it from. Um, I think we all have a, a similar understanding and history of psychology in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, anytime I read something which has um, uh, any any kind of psychological underpinnings to it, it fascinates me because I want to know more about it. Then. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, it's, it's
0: good to have that context. Thank you. So <clears throat> there's a couple of things for, for me and and, I, and I'm going to be multidisciplinary, if that's even a, that is a phrase actually. So, um, it is a phrase. It is a phrase, yeah. So so I, I think, um, so I, I agree, Nick, with, with a lot of what you're saying in terms of the, the way that we as humans process information. So if we look at the field of, say, linguistics, if we look at the thinking about the way that people interact with each other, there's a, a uh, Deirdre Wilson and her kind of um, compadre in research, a guy called Dan Sperber. They came up with this idea of relevance theory, and it was originally inspired by Paul Grice, but they, they come up with this notion that, that people will find the relevance in... Um, stimulus dependent on their own individual background and experiences so um and that's based on both the because they looked at it from a very interactional point of view so um there, so as an example i could talk about swingers and that would have a very specific there would be a relevance that sook would find that may be different to the relevance nick that you will find because Suk and I have got a shared experience and background with swingers, and namely being that swingers is a an inter, an in um, a within a building, um, crazy golf course that's based in the city. There's a second one in the West End, but we have a um, a joint shared experience with swingers. Now I don't know if you have that or not, but when I talk about swingers, obviously swingers as a word has often has other meanings as well. Um, so dependent on the Uh, your own individual experience and or shared experiences that people have, they will find different relevance or different meaning based on what's happening. So back to your point earlier on, Nick, in terms of we have experiences and then we encode that against our own background and experiences I would support that and there's some you know especially from a linguistics pragmatics point of view there's some research to support that that, that definitely happens and I think where it gets then tricky especially if we don't think about at work in or the, how this would work in learning is that because our backgrounds and experiences are different we may encode the same stimulus or find meaning in the same stimulus in a different way
2: yeah and this is why um this is one of the reasons why it's a good theory because one of the things uh, you may also have had this experience i suspect so you you have when you speak uh, at an event you think about the content of your speech as one thing you think about it as look here's the the message i want to get across here the number of points i want to make and what's remarkable to me often is that the People who come up to you and talk to you have taken away different, very different aspects of what you've said or, or even something you didn't even think you were saying at the end of that speech. And that, um, to your point, Phil, is a, a brilliant example of how effectively we diverge. We are idiosyncratic. Um, we all feel strongly about different things. Um, a, a more kind of prosaic example might be if we take a train ride. If you're somebody who knows an awful lot about trees um, versus somebody who doesn't. At the end of that train ride, somebody might ask you about it. You might say, well, it's pretty dull, really. Um, you know, I just, just it was a lot of countryside out the window. Whereas somebody who knows an awful lot about trees, who cares about trees, frankly, um, might have noticed, you know, deciduous uh, shifts in the trees, tree's disease, all manner of things that you didn't. And so... That our, our lives are built from effective significance. Every word that we use is colorful in the sense that you can say dog or cat and depending on people's past experience, which is again a very emotional thing with dogs and cats, um, they respond to that word very differently. So. This is the problem, partly, we've we've ended up with this computational metaphor of the mind where we think we just kind of store information somehow in a box. And people just don't work like that at all. There's nothing in there which isn't effectively significant. Um, and so that means there's a profound difference in the way that we process information um, to, to sometimes the models that we bring when we're thinking about learning and development.
1: And I, I guess this is a piece where I start to... Um, and I, I think this is where, um, uh, this is where, in the blog, I started to wanting to explore other pieces as well. Is I agree up until the point where I go, but we remember things clearly, whether or not I have an affective, um, I have an affective uh, reaction to it. Um, there are things, and I in the blog, I use the example of the Battle of Hastings, ten sixty six. Right, I don't, I don't have an emotional reaction to that. Um, and I have, um, but it is a, uh, a piece of information which is, for whatever reason, lodged in my memory. And it's something I can recall at will. Um, but it's not something which I, it, it, and if I think about it as a piece of information, I don't have an effective reaction to it. And there's nothing about it which causes me to And I'm trying to think back to also when I learned about it back in you know history at school, I don't recall anything at the time which was particularly um, effective, um, affective as opposed to effective. Yeah. um, That um, that would have encoded it in a certain way, which allows me to recall it in a particularly strong fashion. It was, um, it was, and remains. A static piece of information, which um, which I've had to uh, which I've had to store, and and so for me, and I guess Nick, this is this is a piece where I, 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 we can um, explore this. Is how do how, how do you, or rather, um, not you as such, although it is your model. Um, how how do you explain for that then? Because that's that's not something which
2: has an affect piece to it. So um, uh, I, would, uh, I would beg to differ. Um, we don't store information and, and numerous bits of research uh, have uncovered this, the, the, the remarkable extent to which we confabulate. So I'll give you an example. I might ask you to sort of say draw a picture of the front of your house. Now you might think, well, this is, this is something I'm so familiar with. This is kind of just information, you know, that, that I store. And yet, if I asked you to draw a picture of it, you would make kind of gross and striking errors, even in something that you thought was just as as familiar and as informational as as how your house looks. If I ask you, for example, well, you know, if you can picture the front of your house, how many bricks are there? You'd say, well, don't be silly, Nick. I don't I don't remember stuff in that kind of detail. I said, well, okay, yeah, fine. Tell me, you know, where's what's the position of the lightest brick and the darkest brick? Now, even if you had a blurry picture you'd be able to say that sort of thing. So in effect, and, and people like Elizabeth Loftus have uh, provided evidential support for this around things like um, eyewitness testimony. We don't ever store information. What we do is we reconstruct. Um, we, we take the impact things have had on us, um, the way they've made us feel, and we reconstruct a memory from this. Um, and that leads to lots of unreliability. To your point, Sir, specifically around 1066, when I, I suppose, when I think of 1066... I think of sitting in a history classroom um, 1066 immediately is evocative for me as it will be for many people listening to this of history history lessons I can remember my history teacher how she made me feel um, um, I, I can I can also picture that that grotesque thing of Harold with an arrow in his eye um, all of those things are conjured up by 1066 but if somebody says to me a um, thousand uh, and seven hundred and twenty two there's no effective significance to that. So you can very easily picture a country where people don't learn, you know, 1066 as a date, and where that that number has no effective significance to them at all. Now, you know, if what you said were true, then the informational significance of 1066 would be exactly the same between those two contexts. But clearly it isn't. We have a, a reaction to the number 1066 because because of the experiences and the emotional experiences that we've had as part of our our learning you know path and and that's how that number is encoded like with everything else and I think this is something that's very hard for people to grasp is that even things which seem purely informational like numbers or whatever which of course human beings handle very poorly you know people really struggle with memorizing spreadsheets why is that computers do a great job of it the answer is of course that we're effective processing systems that's how we encode all information so you know you you really have to struggle with numbers to give them effective significance um, uh, and that's a big part of what we do in a kind of early schooling um, but other things, you know, we learn quite naturally because they lend itself to that, that way of kind of processing information.
1: And I, I guess where, where that takes me is that I don't disagree in that we, um, that the, um, the experiences that we have, the um, and I guess, uh, Phil, to your point earlier as well, the relevance that we find in the information mm-hmm. is hugely drawn on the, um, what, what comes with it, you know, at, the, at that time. Um, And Nick, I completely take the point. I I, I know the the work of um, Loftus and the fallacy of eyewitness testimony. Um, uh, And at the same time, I'm I'm not sure that we're describing similar things. I think we're describing slightly different things in that um, eyewitness testimony research is about a very quite quite specific thing of, um, you know, you've been witness to a crime and we think that you are able to reconstruct That um, in a way that helps us to understand, um, does it support or um, or not the case we're trying to present? And um, and so I I, I can I can see that I can see I also understand how things can be um, uh, reconstructed because we remember things completely differently. I I I absolutely accept that. I, I guess where it starts to where I start to also then just struggle with this is that there's been masses of research into memory absolutely masses of it that helps us to understand how the human brain um, takes in information loads it encodes it we are able to recall it even years down the line and um you know when we when we think about things like um if, for example, I I, I remember watching um, years ago, um, what was that um, Guinness Book of World Records? Um,
0: what with, uh, with um, the Thingamajig castle. castle?
1: Yes, yeah, 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 yeah okay. that one. Yeah. And there used to be people who used to come on there, and you know, they would they would say, "I can you know memorize two packs of cards, playing cards, in a minute, and I'll recall them exactly." And you go, okay, fine, right? So you can do that, and they do that because there is a particular methodology they, do, they use to um, hold that information, albeit short-term memory, or uh, however it is encoded. But there is a specific process which allows them to do that.
2: Yeah, it's an effective, interestingly, it's an effective process. Um, that, that's a, if you don't mind me interjecting at that point, basically they build a story. Uh, and they make it as bizarre as possible. And there's no better way to actually work with an effective system than to to take dull information and build effective significance. So what they'll say is, you know, they'll identify, a, um, you know, a couple of cards with a very strong visual image and then build that into a kind of a story with effective, you know, so, you know, I walked along the road and I walked into this house and, you know, there was this kind of um, queen sipping tea. And, um, and, and and that's precisely an illustration of, of how you can use... Um, that approach to kind of strengthen the capability of the human mind to encode what is otherwise effectively insignificant um, information, you build effective significance around it. It's used in in language training as well, um, for, to, to great effect. But the key to it is the more bizarre and effectively striking the the imagery, um, the better the technique works. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a great example.
0: And, and I think yes, so you know I'm, I'm not a memory researcher but you know doing what I do um you know supporting with you know, helping investigations or um interviews to to establish what's happened in the past you know it's important that I have a, a good understanding of memory so you know I've done quite a lot of reading and research into it and, and I guess I think that the the changes over time most of all have been the blurring of the lines between the different types of memory So what used to be kind of short-term memory is is in kind of more current research is termed working memory. Working Um, memory, yeah. And the the way that you then, you know, and the fact that working memory is kind of the buffer that both supports the encoding and then the retrieval. And then you've got the storage bit. So you've got the storage that happens in what's still called your long-term memory, but then you've got your working memory that supports the Um, working with what's happening in that particular moment so if you're reading working with what you're reading on screen if you're listening what you're listening to but also then it will kind of dip into your long-term memory to pull stuff forward Um, and and again long-term memory used to be kind of split quite almost distinctively into looking at things like your semantic memory which would be your kind of your general knowledge storehouse of things like what's the capital of france when was the battle of hastings those sorts of things and it, it kind of the it would you know tolving would have said that that's all in one kind of part of your memory and then you there had not had your episodic memory which is where you would then recall more of the kind of experiences that you have over time so it's that you know someone's unique memory or or um interpretation of a specific event, which is why, you know, Nick, some of the, back to some of the examples earlier on, why one person can have a, two different people who've witnessed the same thing can have two different um, accounts of it in their head because it goes into their episodic memory. And I think the, what we're talking about here is, is referencing the fact that actually they're not distinct buckets in their own right. <clears throat> so your semantic memory isn't necessarily a distinctive bucket. So, you might have something in your semantic memory which is, you know, you're able to name capital cities or whatever that is. But as part of the retrieval of that data, you may well bring with you some of that episodic memory as well. So, as part of that reconstruction of that, specific piece of information or that specific piece of data you don't just kind of dip into one bucket to get the information and pull it forward actually it's a bit yeah. more complex than that so was,
2: i think I, I wrote a piece a little while back i think that was a it was a terrible mistake that people uh, researchers tried to kind of theorize this distinction between semantic and and episodic because frankly it doesn't exist and it's just really confused and distorted our understanding of, of how people work and again it's this kind of computational metaphor so if I can take a couple of steps back there's this there's this expression kind of the plural of of anecdote isn't kind of research, and and you could almost say also the poor of research isn't theory, and 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 I can see that the, the textbooks are littered with all manner of kind of misleading research, which is based on kind of flawed assumptions really about how people work. I give a really good example, kind of so Ebbing Ebbinghaus, which everybody knows, 1885, um, you know, discovered that. Uh, as a kind of a forgetting curve and that basically if you push information at people they forget it very rapidly um, but of course in real life things don't work like that at all and that's really peculiar isn't it is that something will perhaps w- 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 what Ebbinghausen often leads to is repetition so people like Donald Clark, for example will say well house shows us if you want to remember things you've got to do them over and over again but yet, if you actually think of the impactful events in your life they typically weren't things that happened over and over and over again in fact many of the things that happened over and over and over again like brushing your teeth you forget And so it's actually the real world is flipped. It's completely different to the research. And you think, well, why is that? And the answer is, of course, that Ebbinghaus made this same mistake. He was dealing with garbage. He was dealing with what he called trigrams, which were just combinations of three letters, because he thought that would be the way to understand how memory works, is to give people people completely colourless, effectively insignificant information. And, of course, because people are only designed to process effectively, it completely distorts the findings. And no wonder, you know, if you try and just kind of feed people chalk, it has no... uh, it, it, they don't digest it, but then the mistake was to f- kind of feed them chalk in the first place, if you like. So that's a really good example of how mis- research has been profoundly misleading because it was based on a flawed assumption about kind of how people work. So this is why I say the theory has to precede the research, otherwise you just end up with a whole load of, uh, as you say, Sook, kind of scientific findings which don't add up to anything interesting or significant about how people actually learn or, or remember.
0: So there's a, there's a chance there, there, Nick, that somebody might have heard that or listened to that and heard you say repetition is an ineffective way of encoding information, which I don't think is what you were saying.
2: It's, it's a terrible, it's brutality. It's, it is, I hate it. Um, it. It's like somebody asked you, you know, how do you fit a square peg into a round hole? The answer is you hit it and you hit it again, and you hit it again, and you hit it again. Um, The much more sensible thing to do would be to stop and wonder, why doesn't the square peg fit into the round hole? So I see repetition as a kind of a savagery. It really is educational brutality. And and I I regret that centuries of kids have suffered um, as a consequence being forced to rote learn things over and over again when really somebody should have stopped and said, Why are they struggling to remember this? Because in real life, the things that matter to you, you remember. The things that really strike you, it can be something that somebody said to you. One comment. It can be one experience that you had in a strange place. You never forget it. It has a profound impact on you. And that's the way that that humans are designed to work. And because a creature that had to be bitten by a tiger 20 times before it learned would die out pretty quickly. Okay, Zook?
1: I'm, um, I'm 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 stuck thinking at the moment okay. um, because I I, I, I I get what you're saying, Nick, um, and it's it certainly is um, presenting me with stuff which I, I do need to just think on quite a bit further, uh, mo- mostly because um, the um, uh, uh, I, mean, I I try and try I try and take quite a uh, uh, an open view as I can to what I think I know about, um, learning about, um, how we operate as people, um, and, um, try and be as open to that as I can. And I guess what I'm, what I'm struggling with in, in different ways is that, um, uh, there, there's certain theories which or uh, I I don't know about certain theories because then I'm going to have to say which ones Um, there's 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 certain (laughs) insights I suppose that I I think I've drawn and come to which um which are kind of multidisciplinary in kind of in in where they've where I've got to with those kind of thoughts and stuff um and and I'm, and I'm just not sure how the effective context model fits with that. Um, in that, there, I, I trust the research that's been done previously on things like memory. In that, uh, because we've been able to objectively show how those things are done, and your your suggestion is that because they've been um, done in ways which are not how people ordinarily operate, it makes them redundant. I'm not sure that's the case, um, because there there have been valuable insights that have come out from them. Um, and partly, I wonder, would you be able to say that they were flawed theories had you not been had you not been made aware that that was how they did their research in the first place? Yeah, and I, I don't know if that makes sense, you know. So, had Ebbinghaus not done his research in that particular way, would you be able to draw the conclusion that? That's just not how people operate. So why would you
2: have gone there in the first place? With the danger with research is it's presented as kind of colourless and objective. And there are always hidden assumptions. Um, So what you sense with Ebbinghaus is there's some tacit assumptions. Probably there's this computational model, which is is never made explicit. And I see this a lot. And I I think it it really threatens... um, you know, the integrity, I guess, of our understanding of people. Um, I'll give you an example of of what I mean by kind of misleading research. So I could uh, could come up with um this idea that this hypothesis that lemons improve learning right um you don't really know why it may be that i'm being sponsored by a lemon company and i I could do a a bunch of research in various conditions where a lemon is present and a lemon isn't present and i'd be prepared to bet you money that in some of those conditions because the way that science works that there is a significant effect right and, and now and now I can say look it lemons have been proven to improve learning um, and now we can sell lemons to schools we can chant lemons holding hands we can have a lemon theory of learning that's built on that an educational practice and instructional design put pictures of lemming lemons and lemmings even at the beginning and end of courses and, and a lot of what I see in learning is, is of that ilk it, it, it doesn't really come from any theory it's just a kind of a disconnected piece of research which may have some kind of tangential significance in certain contexts but doesn't stem from a deep understanding of, of how people work and i think what was so interesting about elizabeth loftus's work is um like bartlett's stuff on the war of the ghosts it's much closer you said i think so that it, it was very specific to to crimes but it wasn't really it was just you know people saw something happen this is real life right people saw something happen and then they were asked later you know what do you remember what happened um, and then the accuracy was compared with the reality so in fact in the case of the cars crashing it wasn't a crime as such it was just an event of emotional significance two cars collided you know how fast were they going what did you see um, and, and that is real life. That's what happens is that people get on a train in the morning, something happens, they get to work and they say, you'll never believe what happened on the train this morning. Um, and then at the, sort of the inaccuracies of that start to emerge. And so that's why it's such a lovely piece of research is because it has a much closer correspondence to, to what people do um, kind of in real life, um, as opposed to kind of sitting you know, in a laboratory trying to remember kind of meaningless information which is the basis of a kind of a lot of uh, kind of the theory that you see.
0: Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things to, to hold on to from, from Loftus, Loftus's research is that um, what, what she, what prompted the, um, especially in the car crash example was the, the change of a word in the question. So yeah. they all watched the, everybody watched the same video and then it was how, how fast was the black car going when it crashed, bumped, smashed, um yeah so, so changing the um changing the, the verb within the sentence um uh, then affected the estimates of uh, how fast people would go she then took that research on to where she would deliberately um change the color of the car for example so she did different a different piece of research where she would change the, the color of the car that, that that damaged one that crashed into another if that makes sense so there were say two cars involved one was red, one was black, the red one was stationary, the black one was moving, the question would be how fast was the red car going when it hit the black one, which is a factually incorrect question. But people would still answer that question and give an estimation of speed. Now, what that plays to is, or what it also brings in, is the compliance that people will, uh, that humans will do in response to being asked to do something. So even though they might know that whether they, they they might know or they might not know whether they the order of those cars or the, the the uh the color of the cars is the wrong way around they may just answer the question anyway because they've gone oh i know what you mean i know what you're trying to get to yeah. get at. so therefore i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna go and do it anyway and and a similar research happened with basketball players i can't remember the name of the person that did it but they um they did some they changed the the verb from uh, how how tall or short is the, you know, is that basketball? You, know, you just seen a basketball player. How tall were they, or how short were they? That would have a, a measurable um, impact on the estimated height of the basketball player, just because of the fact. If you say how small was that player, it brings with it an implication that the player was l- smaller than you would expect from a basketball player. Whereas if you say tall, then it brings with it, it sits with the natural assumptions of what you would expect a basketball player to be.
2: Yeah, and at the risk of driving um, the you know, the point too hard. Um, I don't think that has anything to do with compliance at all. I think what you can see there is a perfect example. You you have a phenomenon which you didn't have an explanation for previously, and you do now, which is that people don't remember this information. They are reconstructing it. And the effective context in which they reconstruct it. So if you say, how fast were the cars going when they smashed? Then you create a very different emotional context to how fast were the cars going when they bumped? And so people will reconstruct the story um, differently and they will continue to reconstruct it. It's not that their memory has been changed. It's not even that they're being compliant. It's rather that given that everything is is reconstructed from how you feel about something, how you feel at the point of reconstruction can also affect the the way that you tell the story. Um, And I think we see that kind of every day in people's everyday lives. If people are very emotional when they tell a story about something that happened at work, they'll reconstruct that story differently than, than if they're in a calmer state.
0: So, so I I agree with you, and so I agree with you, and I disagree with you. So I think the the way that the stimulus is presented will have an effect on the affect that people experience. Um, you know, so the the way that the, the, the you're you're right that the the verb that's used in the sentence then will will have an impact on the reconstruction that an individual brings with it. Um, but that we have to accommodate or account for the fact that that reconstruction has been has been impacted by or infected by the question that was asked in the first place so the the, the way that the um the questions are asked in re- whether it be a research study or everyday life that will um that will have an impact on the way that people reconstruct their memories of events
2: sounds like we agree yeah
0: so i, I guess so what, what i think what i heard was that um, it's about the way that the individual feels when they recall the memory and I agreed that but also the way that the individual what I didn't get clearly was that the point that um, I think the way that the individual feels when they recall it is impacted by what's happening at, for them at that particular time which I know is in, presupposed in the effective context model because context would include what's happening within and within the individual and in the wider surroundings as well but I guess I just wanted to make that point clear or clearer
2: absolutely I, i'm worried now that we're talking about a particular piece of research and some of the listeners may be more interested in in learning and, and... yeah
0: no, and i suppose that's the other thing for me so there, there's for me there's and this is a, a personal bugbear in that remembering something isn't doesn't equal learning something <laughs> because being able but to was... Sorry, go on, was... go on. No, go on. Go, go.
2: but probably memory is a prerequisite for learning so i think um i, I would define learning as um a, a behavioral change or potential for behavioral change um, based on um uh, on memory so uh, i absolutely agree and memory doesn't equal learning but you i don't think you can have learning without memory
0: no no i agree but and i guess the the, the challenge, I think, is that when, when we look at, especially if we look at learning design, then, often I hear I hear people talk about how we need to create something that's memorable. You know, we have to create something that, that people will remember. And one way we can do that is using emotion or, um, or, or, other, or stories or whatever that might be. Now, that might support encoding, but that doesn't necessarily support retrieval and or application. And that's where you have to think about that and i know and i know nick within your kind of how you've linked this your your theory to the some design principles is important because we have to think about the context of application as well as the context of learning because if you you just making something memorable in a in a learning environment whether that be digitally face-to-face whatever that might be if you don't consider the context of application or the context in which you want that that thing that's been remembered to be applied then you're reducing any any impact or any sustainable impact of of what it is that's happening because you're missing the the context in which that learning will be applied
2: so if it's okay i'll give a quick response to that because i'm worried that um you and i are kind of dominating the conversation and so hopefully if you're happy to come back it'd be good to know what you think i think the quick response is this what we've said is that there are basically only two conditions when you're looking at a learner there are conditions where they don't really don't care about something and there are conditions where they do care about something and you do very different things. If they really do care about something, then you provide resources and information um, because they have the effective context. They will add the emotional significance. If they really don't care about something, then it's your job to add the emotional significance. A good example of that would be induction. Typically when people join an organization or first day at school, they're really worried about looking stupid. So if you produce a simple checklist that says, don't do these stupid things when you join, people will absolutely consume that and remember it and use it. Um, another example where they don't care there might be safety people might join an organization that just don't care enough about safety and there really showing people emotionally putting them in simulations or scenarios or telling them stories can do an awful lot to change the way the way they feel uh, and encode information around around safety so that's an application of that theory the first thing that you have to do with a, an audience group is understand what they care about what they don't and then you can apply the appropriate techniques and then that's what we do okay so
1: uh, I, I agree with that. Um, there's so I, I and I, I guess this is a piece where I'm um, I've been thinking about as I've been listening to you guys talk is that the, um, the the point at which we we can take what we're discussing and start to think about. So, what what does this mean when we start to think about? And, and in our collective context that we're talking about here is um, learning development um, solutions and how we help people to perform better at work and. Um, and so within that context, I completely, uh, I'm completely, i completely on board with um, traditional methods of um, designing these types of solutions uh, have been largely ineffective because we haven't really understood how people work. We haven't really taken that time to understand what they're doing when they're at work in order to be able to help them perform better. We're getting there now, um, and that's, I think, where the strength of... Um, I, it, I don't know if it's the strength of the effective context model, Nick. I'd say it's probably more about the strength of the concerned task resource model um, because that's something which is more tangible, I suppose, and more, easy, more easily understood for people. And so when we help people to understand that, if, you, if we look at people's work behavior and design solutions that fit in with that work behavior, it helps them to perform better. Then that's us doing our job well, um, and, and I think that's one aspect of stuff. The other aspect of stuff um, is that if we if if we want, and this is my personal take on it, if we want people to um, learn something in a way which helps them to think better, be better, perform better at a, a, in in a way which is around I don't know, kind of less tangible. Topics, then we need to design a different type of learning solution. Um, so, as an example, um, if we want people to become better coaches at work, it's uh, it, it involves doing a multi-pronged and multi-designed way of being people, being able to help people to do that. Whereas the old approach or traditional approach is just simply we'll put them through a training program and the training will be uh, course-led and they'll be told how to do it and then we will expect them to be able to do coaching. And obviously we know that that's just massively ineffective and just generally doesn't, uh, if even one person got better out of it, that would actually be a miracle um, because people just don't tend to learn that way. So when we talk about it in these contexts, I, I think I'm totally on board with uh, we need to design solutions which help people to uh, perform the way that we know that they actually work and the way that we know people actually do things. Um, and, that, and that's one thing. The other thing I've been reflecting on as we've been discussing things is that I, I get the, the, the piece around the effective context model, which I'm just unsure about, um, is, um, or rather, uh, where it's challenging what, what I'm thinking, is that it's challenging... Um, a fair amount of, um, I don't know if orthodoxy is the right word. Um, it, it's challenging a fair amount of the better research that is out there and available, and and I just need, to, and I'm and I'm not sure where where I place that amongst the other stuff that I um, I draw on. Um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of where I'm at currently.
0: And and if if I may, Sook? when you when you talk about the um the the, other better research and the things that you draw on what sort of things where where are you coming from what sort of things are you drawing on if i if i may ask
1: yeah absolutely um so um in in kind of in the realm of things like uh um it we talk about emotional intelligence i i tend to draw on the work of paul ekman quite um, quite heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, that's just that's, that's yeah. okay. one area there. Um, if we think about things like um, uh, the uh, how do people live well? How do you take care of your well-being and your resilience? Um, I draw on the work of uh, the likes of Martin Seligman and uh, uh, Ben Tal Shahar. Tal Ben Shahar, I think I've got his name the wrong way around. <laughs> Tal Ben Shahar. Well, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll put I'll,
0: that's the I'll put links and I'll put links yeah. to, every, to all the different um, respective people and research in the uh, in the show notes cool. for the podcast. Thanks. Um,
1: and um, and then uh, other things as well, just kind of around physical health and you know what have you. I've tend to just trust the NHS and what they tell us because they've been doing this for a very long time and they know lots of good things. Um, mental health, I tend to trust the likes of mind and um, the Samaritans. And so there's lots of good places out there where and good people out there where I, I know that there is, well I say I know, I trust the work that's been done in those fields because it helps us to advance what we think we know and how we do things.
2: Sure, and I guess it's helpful for people to have those kind of links and, and make up their own minds. Um, for my part, I mean, the recommendations I would make would be people like Antonio Damasio, a kind of uh, neurosurgeon. Um, he wrote a book called... Um, Descartes' era, um, the, the fundamental thesis of which was we, we got it completely wrong about how we kind of process information. Um, if you can still find it in print, there's a book by Joan I called How We Decide, which is very readable along similar lines. And of course, the work of Kahneman. The, the research... Uh, and and this, is, this is the interesting point, of course, is that we can always find a bit of research to justify whatever theory we have. Um, that's just the nature of science. The, the research that I particularly like, there was a, a number of pieces of research into galvanic skill, skin response in decision-making situations as the Iowa gambling task is interesting. But what was fascinating about that is you can measure the point at which physiologically somebody reaches a decision. And the, the extraordinary radical thing about that is it's before they're consciously aware of it. And and this is why this is is so relevant to to the effective context, because whatever is happening in people's decision-making process, it's unconscious, it's not logical, it's not rational in any sense that we would describe. It's what Cameron would call kind of system one. But then if you ask people after measurably they've made a decision why they took that decision they will give you a rational logical sounding answer so this is the this is the the, the Descartes era this is the, the the hidden thing about people is they've always got an explanation they've always got a rational facade but actually what's what's neuroscience is starting to run undercover what's going on underneath it is profoundly different and I think that's kind of you know where, where we are we're often presented with this neat story about how people work and store and remember things and and actually what's going on may be very different i think you said something to that effect in in your piece um uh, so i think there's a lot of alignment already and
1: no, I, I think there is yeah and um and I, I i absolutely agree with that um in that um i, I totally accept well <laughs> sound like it's uh complete can't ever go wrong from it um so i um um, I agree that they, that emotions uh, I, I, the way I normally term it as I say that emotions drive behavior and I think that is in, in, in agreement with what you're talking about there when you talk about um, the effective context model um, and I, I guess where I, the, the, the place I was taken to within the piece is that um, there's a certain point at which I think and the way I've rationalized it is that uh, once we um, or there's a few pieces I think one is that, we're only really starting to understand what that means, Um, which I guess is probably the challenge of um, of when people are trying to understand the effective context model is it's quite hard for people to appreciate that they can't think their emotions. Um, And Mm -hmm. certainly I remember after the piece that I wrote, um, I had um, at least uh, one person come back to me and say, but surely if I think it differently, then I will be different. And, 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 I tried to provide some examples of how that that's not that's likely not to be the reality because that's just not how we work as people um and so there is something there which is quite challenging for people to accept that they aren't fully in control of their responses because their responses are often driven by something which we're only really starting to surface we're only really starting to help people understand that there are these things called emotions and feelings and they are so fundamental to humans that it, it causes us to act and react in ways which, um, which once we try to rationalize and once we try to articulate, um, I, I guess this is um, uh, part of the piece that you're saying there, Nick, is, um, and I suppose it builds on what Nietzsche was saying from your earlier piece, is we already start to then try and, Color in a certain way, which helps us to try and make sense of it. When actually, it's something which currently we don't have the full insight into and the full vocabulary for that actually helps us to understand it. So, if we witness a crash or something, then we will interpret it in a certain way because we've taken it in in a certain way, and I've tried to rationalise it in a certain way. Whereas there may be a whole layer of um, insight i have available to me which currently i can't express because i just don't know how to as opposed to not wanting to
2: mm. yeah
1: uh, i think sorry
0: no go, go on
2: you go next. i think that as we start to get into it i can sense we're peeling apart different uses of this kind of term emotion. So you talked about emotional intelligence, so I think it's very interesting. Talked about kind of emotion at work, which you talked about, Phil. You're talking about the emotional self. I- I'm talking about it as a basic operating system. So if I can tell a sort of a pseudo neuropsychological story, you've got a shed load of information coming in. Yes, I know you've got um, neurons which detect kind of edges and uh, different orientations and stuff. The challenge for the brain is you've got to have a very efficient mechanism. You cannot possibly store all this kind of inbound information. So what do you do? a mind My story is that you basically process all of that, pass all of that information into how it made you feel. And you use those feelings an incredible degree of sophistication in the same way that you use colour to reconstruct um, what actually happened because it's a very efficient mechanism. You could say, well, I had all these kinds of feelings, um, and so I can reconstruct that. And so if you, you're asked about a birthday party, you'll reconstruct a birthday party. It will often be grossly inaccurate, but it allows you to to very efficiently crunch huge amounts of information um, and then to kind of to to reproduce it with a reasonable degree of, of kind of accuracy. So that That's at the most basic level. And I think what you're talking about, Suk, is a very real phenomenon as well. The extent to which people are strangers to themselves, the reasons they make decisions and the trajectory of their lives, the consistent mistakes and and the people they become, um, they're not really fully aware of, which I think why as often feedback is so important in the workplace is that people have this rational story about why they do things, but something completely different may actually be going on.
0: Yeah. And I think that, that kind of put po- that post, um, I, I'm always taking us back to the philosophical place of, of where we started with, because that, that post event rationalization aspects. Um, yeah. I, I remember, I can't remember the researcher. I watched a Ted talk where, where it was a positive psychology Ted talk where people who'd had really quite horrific experiences were able to look back on it and and construct a, a narrative that pulled out the learning aspects from that and how actually it had been the best thing that had ever happened to them, whether that be redundancy or um, uh, you know forced. Um, I think it was I think it's people that had been either made redundant or forced to leave work for whatever reason. They were able to look back on it and go, you know what, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. And part of that is because it it is the thing that happened, and to look back on it and go, actually, you know what, you know what, that was the worst thing that happened to me. Wouldn't, um, you know, doesn't necessarily support that 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 sense of self that you want to have. You know, do you, do you want? You don't want to be the person that is at the whim of others' um, actions, but also you don't necessarily want to be the person that's at the whim of all of the emotions that may be happening um, within your head. So, yeah, yeah. So I think there's um. Lots. Of, yeah, I think you're right, Nick. We're, we're we're peeling lots of stuff back.
2: I've just seen your message, Rick, um, that We're going to have to to end. Um, were, were there things that so you wanted to talk about just briefly before we we close? Um,
1: no, not in particular. Um, it's uh, like I said at the outset. It's um, it's for, for me. It's good to. I'm I, uh, Phil. I appreciate you reaching out to Nick and I to. Take this further, and I think we really have taken this further um, to be able to um, uh, say uh, different pieces, and also to be able to have this dialogue as well. Mm. Um, so I, I just I, I appreciate the um, time to be able to do that, and it's been good to explore. Um, thank you, Nick, for for all your different insights and your thoughts into the model. Um,
2: I was just going to say thanks very much as well. I think often my experience is I don't really know what I think until it kind of bubbles up in conversation. So it's really helpful uh, to me to be able to have uh, this kind of conversation. Um, Thank you for setting up.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you both for for your time and taking part. So what I'd like uh, for both of you is if you have any references or links or places that we think people should go. To find out more, if if listeners are interested in finding out more, then um, if you ping those links across to me, then that'd be great. Everything that we've talked about through the podcast, so everything from the Iowa Gambling Study um, all the way through to Nietzsche um, and everything in between, I'll, I'll make sure we uh, I'll make sure we we pull uh, I'll, I'll put all the links to all of those um, information in the show notes. But other than that, yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, Nick, Sook, thank you very much for your for your time today, and thank you for taking part in this episode of the Emotional Work Podcast. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, written, recorded, and presented by Phil Wilcox, edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.